0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and
1: situations. Lots of people want to be an astronaut, but few are chosen.
2: When I started pursuing it, I realized that it was the perfect job for me. It was the greatest job ever invented. And I also realized that it was impossible to get this job. It was going to be really difficult.
1: It's Tuesday, December 12th. But just between us, it's Science Friday. I'm sci producer Charles Bergquist. The odds of becoming an astronaut aren't good. In 2021, NASA selected 10 astronaut candidates from a pool of over 12,000 applicants. And that's before the training starts. Ira Fleto and Flora Lichtman talk with former NASA astronaut Mike Massimino about his path to the launch pad and how what he learned there can apply on Earth.
0: For all of you who wanted to grow up to be an astronaut and didn't make it, which could be 99% of you, we have one astronaut with us who actually achieved that dream. Mike Massimino is a professor of mechanical engineering at Columbia University, a former NASA astronaut. He's been to space twice on the shuttle, has logged over 30 hours of spacewalking time, and he's author of a new book, Moonshot, A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. He's here in our New York studios. Welcome back to Science Friday.
2: Uh, Ira, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I got to say that it's not every day that I get to chat with someone who graduated the same high school, H. Frank Carey High School in Franklin Square, New York, as I did.
2: Un- unbelievable! <laughs> and we both ended up being science people. Isn't that amazing? Yeah,
0: yeah. All right, let's get into the book. Why, why, in an astronaut? Do you write a book like this one, which is really a motivational book, if I might say so?
2: Yeah, it is. Um, I I learned so much as an astronaut in in uh, things like perseverance and teamwork and leadership. Uh, those lessons were were so valuable to me in space, but I found that they also apply to what we do here on earth, whether you're working for a company in a cubicle, or you're working in a store or you're working from home or dealing with your family, the the same lessons apply. These actionable strategies that we had as astronauts to, to do our work, I found were very, very helpful in, uh, in everyday life. And so I wanted to share these. It was, it was an incredible education for me. You know, the perseverance part, I kind of learned that on my own, trying to become an astronaut. Right. I uh, got rejected uh, three times, including a medical disqualification and that's kind of what the first chapter fair, fair is. For your eyesight. Is for my eyesight, right. I failed the eye exam. And then uh, the rest of the book, though, is is lessons I learned as an astronaut that uh, that I've been sharing in my teaching and speaking uh, since leaving NASA 10 years ago. And I'm I'm very uh, grateful I had that opportunity to, to write them down. So hopefully it will be uh, helpful to people who read the book.
3: Well, let's talk about your eyesight because mm-hmm. this is a part of the book that I was almost unbelievable to me. Just sort of yeah. set it up for people, what the problem was, and then how you, how you solved it.
2: Yeah, Laura. So the, the first time I applied to NASA, um, I was in graduate school. NASA makes an announcement they're looking for astronauts. So I sent my first application. Nine months later, I get a rejection letter. A couple of years go by, NASA's looking for astronauts again. So application number two results in rejection letter number two. And then a few years after that, I got out, got out of grad school was working at the Johnson Space Center, applied that third time, uh, answered that third announcement, and then I didn't get a letter. I got a phone call. They wanted me to come in for an interview.
3: Do you remember that moment?
2: Oh, yeah, I certainly do. I was sitting at my desk. I was working at McDonnell Douglas, and uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and uh, it was Teresa Gomez from the Astronaut Selection Office. And she said, we're wondering if you'd be able to come in for an interview. And I was like, absolutely, yes. And she said, well, we had someone cancel. They had groups of 20 would come in for this. Uh, for six weeks over the course of a few months so 120 people are going to be interviewed, and I guess they had she said they had someone who was it was a Friday I got that call if I could come in for Monday and uh, and she said can you come we had just a week, you know if you can't come in we'll put you in a later group but we'll run I go no I'll take it she goes don't you have to don't you have to check with your boss but like, don't worry about it I'll quit and I'm like that's probably not good to be an unemployed candidate so all right uh, yeah it's okay let's assume it's okay unless I tell you differently So I uh, went in for that. That was very exciting. And then uh, the interview week starts on a Sunday and ends on a Friday. And during the course of the week was a lot of medical exams. And uh, I failed the eye test, which was not that unusual. There was the number one reason for disqualification back then. All this has changed now. But back then, you had to see pretty well to be a pilot, to be a, a military pilot. Uh, you had to see 2020 back then, right. and I think that that rule has changed. And certainly, being an astronaut, it has changed. As long as you're correctable to 2020, have healthy eyes, you're okay. But back then, your unaided visual acuity had to be within their their specifications. And I failed, and they told me I was disqualified, not only for that selection but for future selections that oh. I could not. I could. They were not going to read my application any longer. And unlike other medical issues that people some, sometimes popped up. Because uh, they really went and looked deep in, you know, in all these different places in your body. Every
3: nook and cranny. Yeah,
2: every nook and cranny. <laughs> and sometimes they'd uncover something, but it could be fixed, and then you could be qualified again. It could be overturned. In this case, they said, no, it can't be overturned because your eyesight is your eyesight. And uh, that was pretty bad. You because... didn't
0: take no for an answer. No,
2: that. I didn't. The thing was, I, was I, I what I felt was is that I wanted to at least be able to try. that. I, it, I was okay with being told no. I know I wasn't just signing up to do something. Ordinary. I was trying to, uh, in my mind, become part of this great organization that thousands of people were applying for just a handful of spots, and these were some serious people. There were very accomplished, high-performing people from the military, military test pilots, the best test pilots in the military, were trying to get that job, and other high performers in the in the military and from civilian life. You know, a bunch of really well-qualified scientists and engineers, and medical doctors, and veterinarians, and all kinds of science-related people. We're trying to get in there. And I realized this wasn't going to be something I just sign up for. And so I understood that they would probably not take me just because of the sheer numbers and, and how many great people were applying. But I wanted to at least be able to try, you know. I wanted to, I wanted to make them tell me no, mm. as opposed to me just not trying any longer. And, but this uh, was
3: pre LASIK, right? So, like, yeah, I don't know if LASIK like existed a hard back then. To, yeah, to
2: fix. And they didn't. They didn't. Ex- there were other stuff. There was other things like back then, like radio keratotomy was. But if you did that, you was totally disqualifying. So,
0: how did you get around this? Huh?
2: Well, I thought about it for a while, and I found out about something called uh, vision training, which was done as I read about it was done with kids mainly who had eye issues they could do things to strengthen their eyesight and uh, be able to see better as a result of this training and uh, but it was for little kids but i made an appointment with an optometrist who specialized in this and i promised her i could be really immature i said <laughs> dr hopping you won't you won't tell the difference between me and a ten, any of these 10 year olds coming they'll be they're more mature than i am i guarantee just give me a chance and she helped me and i was able wow. to pick up a couple lines to get that disqualification overturned so at least the next time they were looking for astronauts, they would read my application again.
0: Our number eight four four seven two four eight two five five or eight four four Sci You can tweet us at Sci Fi. So many people want to talk. Let's go to Mike, in Framingham, Massachusetts. Hi, Mike. Oh, uh, hi, Ira. Uh, am I on? You are on. Yes. Oh, cool, cool. Thanks for the show and uh, thanks for taking my call.
2: So uh, I uh, was—I I just happened to hear you on the radio and. Uh, I understand space has a smell, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And I'm sure, uh, uh, Mr. Massimo, you're not sticking your head out the window to get this smell. So uh, uh, if you could just talk about it a little bit,
1: uh,
0: I'd appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Space has a smell?
2: I think so. We're, we're, so we're not exactly sure what it is, but uh, I was a new astronaut and was listening to a debrief of a shuttle flight that uh, had a guy by the name of Sergei Krikalev, who was at the time had more time in space than anybody. He was a Russian cosmonaut mm-hmm. who had flown on Mir a couple times. He flew on, a, on the space shuttle a couple times. And during the debrief, he said that the, the odor in the airlock on the space shuttle after the spacewalks was the same exact odor that he smelled after the spacewalks on Mir. Wow. I was like, whoa. And he just kind of said it. And everyone else is just like, you know, listening. And after this debrief was over, I went up to Sir and said, what is going on with this? And he goes, oh, it's a it's a very distinct odor. It's kind of like a burnt metal sort of smell. And I started speaking to some of the other folks uh, in the office about it. And I thought this was kind of interesting. And uh, so I wanted to notice this on my space flight. And what it is is that when you go out to do a spacewalk, you, you go to the airlock. And then you close the doors the inner door, and then you depress the airlock, get all the air out of there, bring it to vacuum, and then you open the outer door. So the airlock is exposed to the vacuum of space for about, you know, six to seven, eight hours, depending how long the spacewalk is. And then when you come back in, you close the door to space and you repress the airlock. And if you open the hatch and stick your head in right away before all that, before everything's got mixed up in there, because it goes away after you open that hatch, uh, you'll smell a very distinct odor, like a very a burnt metal metallic s- smell.
0: So it's not like dirty socks or something? No,
2: it's like not either. dirty socks. I've heard it been compared to like certain cities in you know, industrial cities in the Midwest, you know, after, you know, in a certain weather pattern, right. you, you kind of smell. Right. But it's very, it's like a very industrial metal kind of smell. And um, it could just be, if you're looking for an explanation, uh, like a worldly explanation, it could just be the outgassing of the metal because there's, You know things as, and when you go to space, it's just you know like uh, the new that you know the as things outgas like the new car smell. uh, Well, the the vacuum of space allows allows the gases to to uh, to escape in our in our gloves and anything any plastics. You don't necessarily smell that because you're in space, but it could just be the outgassing of the metal. But I'd like to think it's the actual yeah, smell, smell of space. <laughs> yeah. yep.
3: Can we go back to your journey to become an astronaut? Because you mentioned in passing that you applied once, were rejected; mm-hmm. applied twice, rejected. Then you did this vision training, which yeah. seems like it took a lot of well, you know, a lot of work. It was
2: like a brain trick, <laughs> is what it was. It was like focusing beyond what you were looking at. It was, yeah.
3: So, what I'm hearing is determination. Yeah. Why didn't you give up?
2: Um, I, 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 thought about that and I realized I would not be happy with myself. And, uh, the thing I kept in mind, I was up at MIT after I was getting my, I knew I was going to be rejected again a second time. And, uh, at that point, cause I wasn't getting, I didn't get an interview and they already were done with their interview. So I knew I wasn't going to be picked. And, um, I remember I was watching the, uh, the Academy Awards were on TV and Billy Crystal was the host. And, uh, they went to a downlink from the space shuttle. And I remember looking at that. That image on the TV and realizing that's exactly what I wanted to do. It was so clear in my head and in my heart that that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be one of those people. And then about a moment, a few seconds maybe after that, another thought entered my head, which was, you'll never get to do that, Mike. That's impossible. You know, real people don't get to do that. And that's the way I felt about it. But I was up at MIT, luckily, and I started thinking about probabilistic... uh, (laughs) There's a guy named Al Drake who was my... I took his probability class. And one out of a million, if that's what my chances were, that's a non-zero outcome. That's a small number. It's not very likely, but it's non-zero. It's a bunch of zeros with a one at the end. And then I thought further that the only way that that probability of success goes to zero, and I will know the outcome, and I will not be successful, is so I give up. So I kind of imagined that one poof turn into a zero. And uh, that was unacceptable. I just could not, I don't think I could be happy with myself if I stopped trying. So the only thing I could control was the, my effort to keep, I could not force NASA to take me, you know, and that's the way it is in a lot of things. But I I felt like that was what I had to try to do. And when I got to the point after my third rejection and I got the the medical overturned so I could apply again and I got another interview, I was with my family during spring break. I was teaching at Georgia Tech and I was thinking that, you know, well, I might get rejected again. It was about a month before we were going to get the final word, but I felt like I'd, I was in a good place. I had trying to become an astronaut had given me uh, motivation to get an education, to get a PhD, to mm. get my private pilot's license, to learn a scuba dive. I had flown a few experiments in space, and I was a faculty member at Georgia Tech. Wow. So if even if you don't get to that ultimate goal, I think you'll find yourself in a good place.
0: Talking with uh, Mike Massimino, former NASA astronaut, author of Moonshot, a NASA astronaut's guide to achieving the impossible on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Our number eight, four, four, seven, two, four, eight, two, five, five. Let's let's so many people, you know, have questions. Let me see what what's really uh, something really cool that we haven't talked Ooh. to about. Oh, hey, this is, this is one that this we've always talked, thought about that. Uh, okay. Steve in Westfield, New Jersey. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you? Um- I, I I had a lifetime as an academic in a completely unrelated discipline, and then just out of sheer curiosity, turned to astrophysics late. And the more the more I pursue it and play with a little mathematics, the the more the enormity just keeps coming at me. The and the 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 enormity of the known and heaven knows what else universe. And I just was wondering when when someone like you uh, just when it hits you that. Of how enormous the universe is. How does your, what goes through your mind, and how does your mind work? Are you always thinking about that, or do you sometimes something happens that makes you think, "Oh Lord, we are
1: in yeah. the middle of an yeah. enormous
0: space." When you when you look down, yeah. from up there, and you've heard the astronauts have been to the moon, looking back on yeah. Earth, changing life changing stuff. Yeah, did that happen with you? It it
2: did. Now we weren't as far as the moon. We were three hundred fifty miles up. Uh, at Hubble, which is high for the space shuttle That's 100 miles higher than, than the space station So we could see the, the curve of the planet And uh, the thought that went through my mind It was during my second spacewalk When I had a chance to really look Is you know This is a, a view from, from afar, a heavenly view And uh, just so beautiful And then I th- dwelt on that for a moment And I thought, no, no, it's more beautiful than that This is what heaven must look like I felt like I was looking into an absolute paradise And it changed the way I think about our planet I think we are actually living in a paradise. It is so beautiful. It is—you see it from afar. You see, I think what it what it truly is—this beautiful place to live. It's very fragile. The thinness of the atmosphere. You look in the other direction out at the rest of the solar system. We've checked out the neighborhood. We've got nowhere to go right now. We have to make this planet work, but it is just just beautiful. And and I try to keep that thought—this this amazing planet place that we live in. Uh, I try to keep that thought from space. When I'm here on the planet, um, whether it's looking at a, a beautiful scene in the ocean or mountains or in the park or a museum or coming here and, and hanging out with the two of you, you know this is really amazing that we get a chance to do this. So do we live in frailty? an amazing place. Do you feel
0: the fragility?
2: Yeah, that, that's the other thing that hit me is that I was as I was looking at this scene, I looked down at my hands and my hands were inside of a inside of a spacesuit. With life support, and I could not last with, without this spacesuit, without my life support, very long. It's because uh, what protects us and keeps us alive is our is our atmosphere, and you can see the atmosphere, the thinness of it, just a blue line going around the planet. And it, if the size relationship, if you think of an onion, the the top thin layer of the onion is the size relationship of our atmosphere to the rest of our planet. And we kind of know that intellectually that we have to yeah. take care of the planet, but when you see it. And you're wearing a spacesuit, and you look out in the other directions. We got nowhere to go here. We got we to take care of this place. So, yeah, the fragility—it's a, it's a beautiful, fragile home, and it's a home that all of us share. That's the other thing that got me. You know, we're yeah. both from Franklin Square, and I'll always be a kid from Franklin Square and a New Yorker and an American. But I think of myself as a citizen of Earth, yeah. and everyone on the planet shares the same home.
1: For so many Black people, the Whiz feels like home. <laughs> The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing, and as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to The Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcast.
3: Ira, I know a lot of people are calling in. Should we go to the phones?
0: Let's go to the f- Yes, there's so many people. Let's go to Patrick in Rochester, New York. Hi, Patrick. Patrick, go ahead. Are you there? Can you hear me? No. <laughs> that's that's too bad. Uh, his question was, um, if you could bring anyone into space, who would it be and why? Who who needs to have maybe some political leader, a, a actor, you know?
2: I don't know. The only, the, only, I, the only thing I can think of is you. <laughs> and maybe flora I, I, think we should uh, go. I think you guys would be great i had both a chance of you. i had both a chance of you should come you, you had, had a chance to go ch- to, well, to well, space no, I did. they had the uh,
0: they had the uh, journalist in space yeah, program yep, i know about before, that. The, before the i've Columbia. heard about that
2: yeah i've been told by many journalists about that yeah, yeah. and i
0: i was going to apply for it and uh, an old yeah. friend of mine is jeff hoffman the, the, oh the, yeah great guy yeah jeff hoffman was, yeah, yeah i said to jeff what's the test that i the toughest test to pass and he said Back in those days, we put you in a garbage bag and tie it up, and you have to be able to survive that. And I said, I have claustrophobia. I'll never, ever pass that. Why would you do that? It says, it's a backup, He's... backup, backup, backup thing in case we have to rescue, a rescue somebody. Right. You
2: yeah. a He said that was the toughest thing? That's the toughest thing. What well, was for... for you? I took, I took a nap when they put me inside. <laughs> I was relieved that they were well, leaving me alone. Well, Just I... go inside <laughs> of this thing for a while. Well, we have claustrophobia. I, I That's I not a, sleep a nap. I fell asleep inside. It was think... a small, little, they called it a rescue sphere. That's why you
0: have the right stuff and I don't. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I can, yeah, I can go to sleep anywhere, I guess. it was not. That wasn't a problem. The toughest thing, uh, well, the toughest thing about being an astronaut in general is getting selected, um, and, and for me, um, you know, the eye test was tough. But I think the, the toughest trial for me was passing a swim test. I talk <laughs> about that in the book because I wasn't a very strong swimmer, and uh, we had to pass we had to pass a swim test uh, in order to go through water survival training. And we needed to go to water survival training because flying in a T thirty eight jet trainers, we had an ejection seat, and if you uh, had an emergency and, and ejected out of the aircraft, you might very very uh, very good chance you might land in the in the ocean and someone's got to come get you right so you have to survive in the water and if and the shuttle also had a bailout scenario for one of the airports uh and it, you would bail out and land in the ocean and they've got to come get you for that so you got to keep yourself alive until they can find you so in order to fly in the shuttle fly in our airplanes to do our training we had to go through parachute training and we had to go through water survival training in order to do that we had to pass a swim test and uh, i wasn't looking forward to this cuz i didn't i wasn't a very strong swimmer Ira, did you learn did you learn to swim over you almost became a lifeguard i was at, almost yeah i failed the last at park.
0: test at the <laughs> yeah. park
2: and- yeah <laughs> i didn't i wasn't a very good swimmer i would never have gotten close on a lifeguard test but i had to become a pretty good swimmer in order to pass this test to go to this water survival training with the navy and wasn't feeling good about it i show up for work uh my you know my first my first week as an astronaut was mainly just administrative stuff and the second week, we were going to start our training together, and I was around all these, you know, uh, superhero-type, military, smart, high-performing people, and I was kind of dreading this, this, this embarrassment that I was awaiting for me once we got in the pool. And Jeff Ashby, a Navy pilot who was from a previous class, comes in to address our group, and he says, um, "You know, I want to." It was the end of the week uh, uh, on that first week, and he says, "I want to." Okay, we're done for this week. I want to remind everyone: uh, training starts on Monday. Uh, in earnest, and uh, we're going to start with the swim test. And I was like, really? How about a math quiz? Can we do that instead? You know, the party's over. I'm just going to be embarrassed by this. Right. And then he went on to say, who are the strong swimmers in the group by a show of hands? And then he said, okay, who are the weak swimmers in the group? And I raised my hand, and he said, everyone else can go home, but the uh, the strong swimmers and the weak swimmers stay after class. You're going to find the time to meet at a pool over the weekend. When we go to the pool on Monday, no one's going to leave that pool until everyone passes the test.
3: You know, Mike, this part of the book actually made me a little teary because uh, I would have – it was an aha for me. I would have expected that NASA might be, like, kind of a, a competitive or, mm-hmm. like, macho place because there's these really ach- high-achieving yeah. people in one mm-hmm. room. But it sounded like there was sort of more collaboration, camaraderie than I would have guessed.
2: Yeah, and, and I had this in my mind as a little boy I when we were watching Neil Armstrong. The floor is way too young for that. But when we were watching – you know Neil Armstrong and you know, those guys. I they to me they were superheroes, and I wondered what would they be yeah. like. These guys, these superhuman people. Yeah. As I got as I started meeting them, um, the current astronauts that I was started working with, before I was selected, I found out they were the nicest people I've ever come across. They were they were high achieving people, but there was a purpose about them. They were there to to do it for science, for exploration, for their country. It was uh, it was like a perfect good, mm. and uh, mm. and I felt like. I fit in very well. You know, I didn't I didn't see myself being this superhero and neither did, th- neither did they. They were very grateful for the opportunity and were there to help everybody out. And you cannot be successful in a job like that. Just like any job here, we've got so many people helping us here doing the radio show today, right? Mm-hmm. You can't you can't do it alone. And certainly in space you can't do it alone and you're you can get hurt. Your it gets dangerous unless you're working together. Never mind also achieving the goal of the mission. So I think a lot of that culture, a lot of the lessons I share in the book come out of like this military culture, that uh, was kind of changed in some ways. I think it. I think our culture at NASA in the astronaut office took the best best of both military and civilian life and gave us these great guidelines to live by. And teamwork was one of them. And I can't remember what the question was. It's okay. You've the answered me. You're, you're sorry. You're
0: answering it. Let me go okay. to Annika in Fremont, California. Hi, Annika. Annika? Well, Hello? Yes, go hi. ahead.
4: Um, hi, my name's Annika. Um, I'm a high schooler. I'm from Fremont, California. And I had a question for you. So I'm, as I'm a teenager, I wear glasses, and I've also done scuba diving certification, so I thought that was pretty cool that you did it too. I was wondering if you as an astronaut, have you learned anything about like um, extraterrestrial life and if you've learned about how, like, things can be, like, as you said before, in the 19, they can, extraterrestrial life in another solar system can hear um, radio waves in the 1920s. So do you know any more information on that, or if there even is extraterrestrial life?
0: Yeah. do you think there's extraterrestrial life, found?
2: I yes. do. Uh, I don't know anything. Uh, you know, sometimes people think that, they're, here's the secrets, guys, <laughs> but no, we really, you know, we haven't as far as I know, and uh, there is no evidence that we've been visited or that we've discovered any life out there yet, but I do think that that day is coming. What Mm -hmm. the Hubble has shown us is that there are, the the telescope, my missions that I worked on, the, the Hubble, has shown us that there are billions of galaxies, each of which have billions of stars, most of which have multiple planets orbiting around them. You know, in your lead up today, you talked about this new system of of six planets and maybe more in this one. So, so there's lots of possibilities. To mm-hmm. think that we're the only life form here in the whole universe. I think that's very unlikely, but we haven't found each other yet.
0: Let's go to Martin in Southington, Connecticut. Hi, Martin. Hi, how are you? Hi, go ahead.
2: Yes, uh, Michael Messamino, Martin McCarthy from Commonwealth Street. Oh, my gosh. He lived down the block. <laughs> he lived down the block for yes. us. I know. I know it. Hey, Martin. I know-
3: it's like how a high you, school reunion.
2: I'm doing all right, man. Good for you. Hey, I just, you know, my wife and I passively follow your career. And uh, you. I just figured I'd give you a, a phone call today if I could get on and let yeah. you know that what an amazing job you've done. Like, when you consider us playing Under the Trees on Commonwealth Street, a yeah. Green Army, and yeah. to, uh, to a man of the of the cosmos. No, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's great to hear from you. I remember watching. We said we spend our summers watching. I remember, we watch like Frankenstein movies and stuff like that. <laughs> and, and eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That was yes. that was the days in the summer. Martin. it's yeah. great to hear Before from you. Before air
0: conditioning. Thank, thanks welcome. for calling. Let's go to uh, let's go to another phone call. Let's go to uh, Robin in uh, Mandeville, Louisiana. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, I
4: Hi, am Robin. here. Yes, I, I have two questions. And number one, I just looked up uh, his book. And I lived in Titusville right on the river from uh, 95 to 2002, and I'm almost certain I saw him go up in March because I saw every space shuttle go up between those times. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks (laughs) for watching. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. I couldn't help. The windows rattle and, you know, there's a lot of noise going on and uh, and people. Also, um, my um, 12-year-old grandson uh, wants to become an astronaut. He's Mm -hmm. always had that idea in his head he'll be in seventh grade next year what's a good um let's see how do i put Game it what, plan. what should he do <laughs> yeah what what's a good plan to get him to where he wants to be well
2: i uh, i i think the best thing he can do is uh keep dreaming and doing the best that he can in school and uh you know li- listen to his parents did you say he was your grandson
0: He's listen l- listen, friend, yeah. listen,
2: to his grandma, I think, would be a good idea, because you seem to be caring about him, so listen to the people that care about you, try to live uh, as best you can, try as hard as you can, and do the best that you can, and I think that's really, at that this point, that's what's important. As far as, like, what he might go into or study, it's really what he likes. Um, I flew in space mm-hmm. with military test pilots. I also flew in space with engineers and astronomers, mm-hmm. and you might, you know, that makes sense, but I also flew yeah. in space with um, with a geologist. Drew Boissel was a field geologist. He liked rocks. Oh. He was working for an oil company, looking for mm-hmm. oil because he right. liked rocks. I flew in space oh, with okay. Megan, Megan MacArthur was uh, an oceanographer. She wanted to become an astronaut at an early age, studied aerospace engineering, and then because she was the smallest person on the submarine team, they made her be mm-hmm. the driver, and she learned how to <laughs> scuba <laughs> dive, and she, she went into to oceanography because that's what she loved. And then I flew in space... With the veterinarian rick linehan loved animals and he became a veterinarian. Oh. he really loved dolphins oh, he was taking care of dolphins but when he became an astronaut so uh, I, yeah. I, think it's I didn't really... realize
4: there were so many and so much diversity no yeah it, re- it really see. is
2: what whatever he might be interested in so i think science engineering math you know the stem fields are the key and find mm-hmm. something you like follow what you love doing and don't worry so much about being an astronaut this might sound strange but I think I always try to think of I I didn't want to do anything just to become an astronaut because then you start doing things that maybe aren't right for you because there's so many pathways to go at. And I think if you follow what you love and work as hard Mm -hmm. as you can at it, I think you you get led to a good outcome.
0: Hope that helps. That's very good advice. Thank you so much. Thanks for the call.
3: Mike, speaking of diversity in space. You described yourself as not the typical astronaut, like no. not the Neil Armstrong. How do we open up space even more for people who are like even less like Neil Armstrong?
2: Mm. Well, I think it's happening. I think that, um, you know, the NASA program uh, has been, uh, was at first just military test pilots. And then when the shuttle program opened up, it changed. And that's what, when I, when I was in college, I started looking into this. When I went, I went to see the movie, The Right Stuff. And I read the book by Tom Wolfe, and it kind of changed my uh, my thinking that maybe this is something I can do. Because looking into what nat- astronauts were in the uh, in the 80s, it wasn't just the military test pilots. It was also scientists and engineers. The first people of color were picked. The first women were picked to be astronauts for the shuttle program. And I, as as Iris said earlier when we were talking, that he was almost a, was going to try out to be a journalist to fly in space. So NASA was trying its best to open up the um, the the doors. To more people, even the eye problem I had is not an issue anymore. So the medical qualifications have changed. The height limit has gone has gotten bigger and smaller, and so now more and more people can go. But I think what's what's even more um, uh, more possible for people is the uh, the chance to go as a non NASA astronaut with some of mm-hmm. the private missions they have um, that are available now. Now it costs a lot of money. But still, we've had uh, some interesting people go that are not your career astronauts. Some with non-technical degrees are able to go in space now.
0: This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
2: At Radio Lab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry.
3: But But we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs.
2: <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers.
3: And hopefully make you see the world anew.
2: Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know.
3: Wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Uh, Flora Lickman and I are talking with Mike Massimino, author of the great new book, Moonshot, A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. Mike, we just have a couple of minutes okay. left. What, what's your message to people in this book? What, what do you want them to get out of this?
2: I think uh, th- that I would like them to know that anything is possible in life and if it can happen to me, it can happen to them. You know, I, there's nothing, special. we just heard from Marty McCarthy. I'm sure it, I know Marty was not impressed with me when I was a little <laughs> kid. He was a bit older <laughs> than me. And, you know, I, I, you know, I was just a skinny, scrawny kid. Uh, you know, we were talking about, uh, learning science back in Cary high school, I didn't do very well in Mrs. Katz's. Uh, did you have her? Ms. No, Katz?
0: no, I didn't. I had. You remember too, her? I don't remember Earth her, Science. but I did. I did not do well in in high school chemistry. I got you know C's and right. I never achieved that. And even in college chemistry, I, yeah. it was awful. But it, you know, I picked it up years later.
2: Yeah, and, and you know that you get through those those trials. I, I did not do well. I got a D in one. Don't go out and start failing stuff and blaming on me now, kids. But. <laughs> But I was a wake-up call. I was in the eighth grade, and I end, I really had to start working harder. And I had – there was a student in National Honor Society that signed up. To, I, I signed up to get some tutoring, and I got the help I needed. And I was able to pull out a, a very good grade by the end of the year. So there's going to be obstacles and roadblocks, whether it's the vision test for me. That's no longer a roadblock for people. But uh, but there's always going to be mm-hmm. uh, things in a way. Uh, successful people are not those that never failed. There are they that never let failure stop them. And uh, – I had bad eyesight. I'm afraid of heights. We haven't even talked about that. I still don't like heights. Uh, I'm not a thrill seeker, but I had this this desire, this dream of wanting to be a part of the NASA team and flying in space and, and and doing that as a career, and I was able to to make it happen, and that's what I share in the book. So if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody, Ira. There's nothing special about us growing up in Franklin Square, and we're sitting here together, doing both of us with really cool jobs here with Flora next to us, and you know, it's po- it's possible your dream can't come true, and I would I would I would encourage people to give it a try. You, I, you owe it to yourself to try. You know,
0: Nasty used to say failure is not an option, but failure is an option.
2: It is. It's going to yeah. happen, and you, you know, I think you learn from that. You, you make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. That's another thing I talk about. Is that there's a, a rule I learned a 30 second rule where you fail at something or you make a mistake. You're not going to be mistake free. You know, we try to be we try to be mistake free, but things are going to happen that we don't plan on and we don't like. And it's okay to be upset about it, but limit it to 30 seconds and then leave it in the past and move on. That's another rule that I talk about.
0: Well, we have run out of time. I'd like to thank Mike Massimino, an old
2: neighborhood friend of mine. From around the corner. corner. This is unbelievable. What's the chances of that? That's less than one in a million that we would end up here together all these years later.
0: Author of a great book, Moonshot, A NASA Astronaut's Guide to Achieving the Impossible. And you can read an excerpt from the book at sciencefriday.com slash Moonshot. Until we meet again.
2: Uh, great, great to see you, Ira. Thank you, thank you for. You're, it. you're welcome.
1: That's it for today. Tomorrow, our look skyward continues with some aurora science. I'm Charles Bergquist. We'll see you soon.